I met one woman, Angela, who had just moved here uh, with her two kids and she didn't have support in place locally. And we started looking for resources here in Miami and we couldn't find anything that would offer things like driving your kids to school when you just had surgery and you can't. Someone who can come clean your home when you're feeling sick. None of that was available. And you would think we're in Miami, we're in a big city. You would imagine that you can just pick up the phone and, and make that happen. And it really wasn't. So she was our main inspiration for this. From Share Cancer Support, this is season two of the Our NBC Life podcast, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease. I'm Victoria Goldberg, and I'm thrilled to host the new seasons of the Trailblazer series where we shine a spotlight on people and organizations in local communities that partner with us to make our lives better. Their hard work and dedication never ceases to inspire and amaze me, and I'm excited to share their stories with you. Also, I can't wait for you to listen to a very special segment at the end of this and every future Trailblazer episode. It is written and hosted by my podcast team member, Dar Finkelstein, who calls it a dash of joy. And most of all, I am so glad you're here, since no one should face NBC alone. It gives me distinct pleasure to introduce this month's Trailblazer Rosemary Carrera, the founder and the president of 305 Pink Pack. This fledging but already mighty organization is changing lives of women undergoing cancer treatments across South Florida. In her pre-cancer life, Rosemary was an optometrist with a successful practice in Miami. Her specialty was working with people with vision impairments and finding ways to best allow them to remain independent. Diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer after her first screening mammogram, for the next year and a half, Rosemary became dependent on friends and family to help her through this dramatic disruption to her life. 305 Pink Pack was inspired by her own experiences and the experiences of women in her community who did not have the support they needed during their cancer treatment. Her organization provides solutions that alleviate some of the stresses that accompany a cancer diagnosis, such as addressing transportation and housekeeping needs, but it also serves to create a community where women with all types of cancers can find common ground and an understanding here. So here is Rosemary. I am so incredibly happy to have you on oh, thank you. first Trailblazer episode of the season. And it's just very exciting to have you with us. I appreciate you having me. This is quite an honor. Thank you. Oh, you do so much for the community. I think it's only fair that we highlight what you do. Tell me about your, uh, I hate this word, journey, but how did you get to where you are now? The more I think about it, it is less of a journey and more of a process that you just go through the motions and it just changes with time, but there's always a process. My diagnosis came after my very first screening mammogram. I was very fortunate to go see a new primary care doctor because my insurance required me to have a primary care doctor. I had never had one before. And so I went to this doctor first time I see him. 
I had been having some issues with my hips. I had just had a baby, so things were not feeling right. And so he ordered all the tests. And at the end of my exam, he said, well, we also have to order your mammogram. And I just looked at him with this look of confusion. I said, why? He said, well, you're 40. It's time for your mammograms to start. And I swear that he heard me roll my eyes <laughs> in disbelief. And he said, look, you can have the mammogram done at the same time in the same place as the other tests that we're doing. So you just get it all done at once. And I am eternally grateful to him for saying that to me because I wouldn't have done it otherwise. I just didn't think I needed to. When I went in for my mammogram, my tissue was so dense, they couldn't see anything. Oh, yeah. And, and she told me, she said, don't be surprised. They're going to call you back to do more testing because we really can't see. And so when I went back for more testing, the radiologist came in after the sonogram and he said, well, you have these two areas. It's highly unlikely that that would be cancer because what are the chances of two lumps being cancerous next to each other? So I wouldn't worry about it, but let's just biopsy just in case. And my jaw just dropped. I was like, what, <laughs> what are you telling me here? And then when I went in for my biopsy, the, the doctor who did the biopsy was extremely kind. My nurse was incredible. And you could just tell that they knew that it was positive, And I knew that it was positive at that point. So I was, I was pretty much ready to hear the news when I got it. And when I got the diagnosis, it was already at a stage two. And because of my age, we decided that a double mastectomy would be the best option because it was a multifocal tumor. It was very large. And I would have ended up having a mastectomy on that side anyway in order to get clear margins. Chemo came as quite a surprise for some reason. And then after that, there was plans to do radiation. In between that, we had the conversation about tamoxifen. And I actually have a blood clotting protein that puts me at a much higher risk for clots, which is why I, I was never able to take birth control. And so I talked to the doctor. I said, I really don't feel comfortable being on that. What's another option? And the option that I was given was Zolodex. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically shut down your ovaries, right? Right. And so when I saw how Zolodex was done, I said, I don't want to do that. Can we do a hysterectomy? And the surgeon was incredibly supportive. He said, yes, absolutely. We can do that for you. Mm -hmm. So in between chemo and radiation, I had a radical hysterectomy done. And then after radiation, six months later, I had my reconstruction done with implants. And at that point, I had already been on an astrozole for about five months. And you, know, you had your typical side effects, the tiredness, the, the joint pains. But after I had the implants put in, I just had more and more pain over time. And I knew that I would have certain types of pain and certain types of discomfort from the mastectomy and the radiation alone. But it was getting to be where it was really interfering with every aspect of my life. And I said, you know what? I think it's time for these to come out. And so this past December, I opted to have my implants removed and go flat. And again, my plastic surgeon was incredibly supportive. I was ready to put up a fight to get them done. And he said, no, I, if you're feeling pain, then yes, let's remove them. I can't guarantee all the pain is going to be gone, but a significant amount of it probably will. And I can tell you that 99% of what I was feeling overall in my body, not just in my chest, is gone. And I wear a prosthetic now. 
which I didn't think I would wear. And so I wore it now to avoid other pains. But, you know, we make all these decisions trying to get better, but all those decisions have consequences. So it's a matter of balancing all those pros and cons and and the effects that result from, from every decision you make. But it's one of these things where you have X amount of information at the time that you have to make a decision and you have to be confident that the decision that you make at that moment is the best decision for you at that time. And later, you may have to make other decisions that are better for you at that moment, and that's okay. This is constantly changing, and we can only change with it. I was very fortunate to have an incredible support team, my family, my friends. I have never felt so blessed or so loved in my life. Everybody really came together. When I was diagnosed, my daughter was eight months old. And it was a matter of trying to figure out how we could best keep her life as stable as possible so that things would be as uninterrupted as possible for her. Friends were bringing dinner, doing groceries, helping me clean, everything. All the women who were in my community that had experienced a cancer diagnosis reached out to me when I was diagnosed and gave me advice, help, support. They were there for me from the very beginning. And so I came to them with the idea of creating the Pink Pack to support local women going through their cancer treatment. And so we came together and thought, well, what are the things that would have been really difficult or impossible for all of us to do had we not had help? Mm -hmm. And so we came up with our program where we offer transportation to appointments, housekeeping services, child transportation, self-care services, like manicure, pedicures, haircuts oncology massages, things that just make you feel somewhat normal in in Mm -hmm. quotation marks, (laughs) and then offer uh, mentoring and support services as well. And so we came to be January 2020 before things changed very quickly. Perfect timing. Yeah. And it was perfect timing in the sense that the demand for a program like ours really, really showed And so we were able to assist quite a few women last year while we started our program. And we adjusted things here and there. I learned a lot in creating this program. And I learned a lot about different types of treatment. And one woman I met, Abigail, who is very well known in the NBC community. Absolutely. I learned from her how different the treatment for NBC is compared to early stage breast cancer and how different the needs are in that community. And so... We sat down and said, okay, how can we make a difference there? And so our services in general are offered during active treatment, which is chemo, radiation, but we weren't offering it for immunotherapy. And so for women with metastatic breast cancer, I learned from her that oftentimes you don't start with chemotherapy. You are put on oral medication, which can have similar side effects and difficulties in adapting to that change, and things have to be changed over time. And so we decided to create a program for women with metastatic breast cancer where they have a, an allowance of $2,500 in services for the duration of their treatment. So if they need somebody to come and clean their house this month because they're just too tired or feeling too ill, they have that available. If they need a ride because they're not feeling well enough to drive that day to their follow-up, they have transportation available to them, haircuts, many petties and then support. She's been a huge, huge advocate in the community 
And she seems to know everyone that we need to find to provide mentorship and support to these women who are living with MBC. I'm extremely grateful for her knowledge and for her guidance in this. She's an incredible force in the community. Well, let me ask you, though, a lot of the stuff you do is actually in person, right? So how did you adjust during coronavirus? We had just started. We didn't have to adjust too much. We just kind of said, okay, this is how this will be. And our program, we work with third parties. We use Uber. And so they change their policies for the drivers and providers. For the housekeeping services, the company we work with is a local company called Fast Action Mitigation. And from the beginning, they said, we are taking all the precautions, PPE, everyone gets tested on a regular basis, people get screened before going into the homes. So we all knew that we had to take those specific precautions in place. How do you raise your funds? How do you make it happen for the community? Uh, We are uh, very fortunate to have a community that believes strongly in what we're doing family and friends that support us tremendously in this, where we haven't had to interrupt our services at all during this time. And we've had to get creative with fundraising. Uh, We've tried to do some virtual events, which have helped. But I think at this point, people are a little zoomed out and are really wanting that one-on-one and and personal touch. So we're adapting to that as well in the next few months. But honestly, it's the, the people within the cancer community itself are our biggest champions, people who have been through treatment or are still going through treatment or have had a family member go through this. They realize how difficult these little things can become and how much more stress they can add during treatment. So they really appreciate the services that we're offering. A number of our volunteers that do groceries and deliveries for our ladies in our program are women who have been through a diagnosis or who are living with metastatic breast cancer right now. And it's amazing that they feel so strongly about helping somebody else that even when they aren't feeling well, they find a way to make it happen. So it's a really an honor to be surrounded by such incredible people every day who work very hard to make our program happen. It's amazing that you mentioned this. I run a metastatic breast cancer helpline at share. And I'm always amazed that, uh, women who are going through this diagnosis themselves they're so ready to uh, to give a helping hand you mentioned that you provide mentorship and education so how is that done and what exactly do you do or for support other than actual physical support yeah when the pandemic started actually reached out to abigail to ask her how we could offer support virtually for the women in our program And so she, along with her father, who was a mental health counselor, started our pack chats for women with stage four metastatic cancer so that they had an outlet, at least virtually, where they could express their feelings when you're already dealing with something that is so traumatizing. And so we started our coping in a crisis group, which is for stage four women. And then we also started a group for Spanish-speaking women, because Mm -hmm. I found that locally, even though we have a huge Latin community, there was no Latin support groups, no Spanish-speaking support groups. And so we started that on a monthly basis. I am finding, though, culturally, it's a challenge because I am of uh, Cuban descent, and we were always taught that you don't 
bother people with your issues and you don't talk about your problems. It's just something you take care of and done. And I think that's a really hard challenge to overcome. So I'm very open with the women in our program about seeking mental health counseling. Mm-hmm. I did not see a therapist until after I was finished with radiation treatment. And I really wish that I had seen one before because it made such a difference in how I approach things and how I handled things and just organizing myself and knowing that it was okay. These are things that are absolutely okay to talk about. And you are absolutely not alone in this. But I'm finding that for the Latin women in our program, one-on-one works much better than a group setting. But I think that once we're able to do things in person, that'll change because it's just more personal, more comfortable when you can just sit in person and chat with a few people as opposed to trying to do it over the camera. The technology is also a challenge. A lot of the women in our program do not have access to technology. And so it's easier to do one-on-one calls or texts than doing something via Zoom. So our Hispanic community works very well with a one-on-one mentor, but not as much in a group setting virtually. I'm hoping that that'll change to in-person. There is a big disparity in access to healthcare and the difficulties and the challenges that these women face because of the, the problem with access becomes very significant during treatment. One perfect example is how to get to your appointments when you don't have a car. A lot of the women that we are servicing right now, they live extremely far from the two major centers that are available here. And so for radiation, we have about five ladies right now that are doing daily radiation treatments. And each way to their treatment is at least $45. So you're looking at women who are already low income. They aren't able to work during their treatment because the type of work that they do, they can't afford to get sick in their exposure. They don't qualify for a disability because their job doesn't offer that type of support. They don't qualify for unemployment when they stop working. And so now what is their option? Take a three-hour bus ride each way to your radiation or pay $45 on Uber transportation that you can't afford. So that's where we come in and we're able to uh, afford that transportation to them so that they can get to their appointment promptly. They can get it done and go home in a, at a decent time and get rest. You know, rest is so important in your treatment. Your body needs a chance to recover from everything that you're going through. And if you're stressing out about having to make your day six hours longer because you have to take a three-hour bus each way versus paying $100 round trip to get there on time and back on time. Where's your breaking point with that? Do you also find that because of the cultural issues and financial problems, a lot of women in the community do not get regular mammograms and do not get diagnosed early enough? Yeah, absolutely. There is a lack of affordable health care that creates a barrier. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of great programs that offer free mammogram or $99 mammogram okay. during Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Results come back where it's inconclusive and you need further testing. 
And you can't afford that further testing. You can't afford a, a, a sonogram. You can't afford a biopsy. What happens then? Yeah. So that, that's where we're really starting to see some challenges where then once they're able to get into the system where there's public health care available, it's very late in the process. And what about the undocumented population? I'm sure just like in New York City where I am, there is a, mm -hmm. a substantial number of people who can't have access to health care no, at all. They can't. And we're fortunate that there is one organization locally that offers health care to the undocumented. But even still, they're afraid to go. They fear any assistance that they get, even in using our program. We have mm -hmm. no financial limitations. We have no documentation limitations. We assist anyone who comes and asks for it, but they're afraid to ask. Yeah. So it's just heartbreaking. The more you come across that, you realize how how unfair the current system is. So tell me, how do you see your organization five years from now? I would love for us to be able to create an actual center where women can come and be part of it. Mostly because every time, and it's without fail, every single woman that enrolls in our program immediately asks, how can they help? And I tell them, your time to help will come right now. Focus on yourself. But your time will come. And it is incredible how they either want to mentor or want to volunteer in so many ways. And so I would love to see an actual brick and mortar location where we can have mm -hmm. these women working and volunteering. And I think it would be really great to be able to employ these women as well and use mm -hmm. the skill sets that they have, because right now for them, it's a challenge. And I would love to see that grow. I would love to see us be able to grow into more areas as well, because Miami-Dade is very big and we really do service women from the northern boundary down to the southernmost boundary. But if you go south from there, there is a huge lack of services in the county below us, which is Monroe County. Mm -hmm. And I would love to be able to expand our services there and into the northern county, which is Broward County. So if we can get all of South Florida in, that would be wonderful. Obviously, the more women we can assist, the better, because these are services that every woman can benefit from. And as it is, last year we serviced 92 women. And this year, we're in the beginning of March, and we've already received 62 requests to be mm -hmm. in the program. So it's uh, obviously something that is needed and in demand. And I could only hope that we can continue to grow to, to meet that demand. So how do people find you? We are very fortunate to have a very good relationship with the social work departments at the two major treatment centers. They're finding us because social work department is really targeting and saying, hey, you can benefit from this. That's not to say that they don't offer our services to everyone because I've heard them do it. And I've, I've gotten volunteers that are women who are going in treatment who got our flyer from their social worker. They didn't feel that they needed those services, but they saw them and they wanted to help. So we're very fortunate that we're able to reach a community that's really in need, primarily through the social work team. And then from the women themselves who are in the program, since they're living in these at-need communities, they know other women that are going through the same thing. So they refer each other into the program, which is fantastic. 
That's absolutely wonderful. So our little podcast is growing. We're hopeful that more and more people will hear us and will get to listen to this particular podcast as well. And they would want to help. So how do they find you and how can they volunteer if they want to? Of course, you can go on our webpage, which is 305pinkpack.org, and you can specifically look at the Thriver Fund, and you'll see a little bit of Abigail's story there and how the Thriver Fund was started. So if you'd like to make a gift that will go specifically to assist women with metastatic breast cancer, you can make a gift on the Thriver Fund. If you'd like to be a mentor to other women who are going through metastatic breast cancer or a volunteer locally, then you can also just send us a message through our webpage for that as well. That's wonderful. What are the exciting things that you're planning now that we're hoping coronavirus is coming to an end? We do have a virtual fundraiser in April, the first week of April. We have a local chocolatier named (sighs) uh, (laughs) a a, a company called Exquisito Chocolates, who is a a woman-owned business, and she is going to be doing a virtual chocolate-making class for us that you can actually make chocolate at home. So that'll be coming up on April 9th. We're excited about that. And then we're looking forward to having some small events later on in the year. We really want the women in our program to be part of these events, and I don't Mm -hmm. want to do anything that would make them not feel comfortable in that kind of a setting. So Towards the end of the year, we'll probably have a few more in-person events, like maybe a small breakfast, just a small gathering so that they're able to participate as well. So I know that your sister is a very talented graphic designer and she designed your logo and it's, it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, my sister and one of our founders, Suzette, who's also a graphic designer, they came together and, and created that because... The name is a little bit misleading because we're 305 Pink Pack. It's pink because it started with breast cancer, but we really wanted to incorporate all the different cancers that women can have. And so we incorporated all the colors into the logo. We have to make an active effort to make sure that women understand that it is for everyone. We try to do that as much as we can. But it's true, cancer doesn't discriminate, right? It doesn't really matter whether it's breast cancer or ovarian cancer or uh, lung cancer. You still need the same support. And the bulk of the women, are, our program follows the statistics pretty closely. 75% of the women in our program have early stage or metastatic breast cancer. And that's pretty significant. Yeah. So we talked about the organization. What's in store for you personally? What are your expectations? What do you plan to do with your life when you grow up? When I grow up, that's a great question. <laughs> I, well, as you know, I'm an optometrist and I, I had my own practice. I walked away from it when I was going through my diagnosis because I just couldn't focus on what was happening there and focus on myself. And fortunately, I had the luxury to do that. Right now, I feel that I'm exactly where I need to be and where I should be. So I will continue to do this full-time for as long as I can. And the stronger our community gets here, the better this program is going to become. And I hope to be able to bring in more and more people to help it grow. And then there's being a mom. (laughs) I get to be mom as well to to an amazing little three-year-old girl. I hope to see her grow and become the amazing person that I'm hoping she's going to be. 
Absolutely. I'm sure I've forgotten to ask you something. So if you were an interviewer on this podcast, what would you ask yourself? Maybe what I wish I would have known before all of this. I learned a lot through the process. You quickly have to become an expert on your diagnosis mm -hmm. and, and all the options that are available and what to do. And I think one thing that I really learned was that I was actually at a much higher risk of developing breast cancer than I thought. I thought I was average risk. And I learned about a very important website called assessyourrisk.org where you can put in your information and you can get a better idea of what your risk for developing breast or ovarian cancer is. And had I done that before, I would have learned that I was at a much higher risk and would and have been able to... that? You have um, the dense tissue puts me at a much higher risk. Mm -hmm. Also, the age that I had my first child. So having known that, I would have probably started the conversation about mammograms with my doctor earlier and started to gather more information and more knowledge. So I am a very big proponent of that particular information. You need to know what your risk is, not just for breast and ovarian cancer, but for all different cancers, because we just make the assumption that or, you know, this doesn't affect our immediate parents, maybe. So I'm really not worried about it. But there's so much more to it. So you really need to put your research in, know your risk and be able to have that conversation with your doctor. And if your doctor just says, oh, don't worry about it, that's not for you. You need to find another doctor who's going to listen to you and go through this process with you. You have to be your greatest advocate because otherwise you're just kind of a, a number on a schedule each day. So I think it's wonderful to have a positive attitude and continue to live your life. And yes, but you also have to be aware of the reality of the situation. And ignorance is bliss, absolutely. But you have to be realistic in the possibilities and in the science. And in our county alone, more than 35% of the women who are diagnosed with breast cancer are diagnosed initially at late stage. That does not bode well. I think education is the key. We have to educate our women. You have to do what you can and what's in your power to educate yourself and make the changes in your life that you need to change to improve your chances as much as possible. Yes. You have to live your life. Yes. Is it always there? Yes. But in a way, you also have to embrace all of this. It makes you look at everything in a different way. It makes you live your life in a totally different way. And, and that's okay. I am very hopeful in all the work that organizations like yours are doing and MetaViber is doing to really push the importance of science with metastatic breast cancer because it is all too common. It is unacceptable that it is that common. Everybody knows that October is breast cancer awareness. So now we need to find time to say, now it's metastatic breast cancer awareness. We need to find the funds to make this not a conversation that we have to have anymore. We need to make sure that our ladies aren't being put in a place where they're like, what do I do for the next three years? If I have three years, mm -hmm. that can't happen. 
And so this past October on our social media, we made it a point to focus on metastatic breast cancer and not breast cancer because it is two very different things. And it's two different conversations that we need to have, but it's a conversation that needs to keep happening. And the only way that people are going to hear about it is if we keep talking about it and we keep yelling at the top of our lungs, hey, this is happening and it can't happen. That's our job. The pink ribbon campaign isn't that old. And they made a, a big, 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 big dent in history. So with all the platforms we have for metastatic breast cancer, and all the women that we know who are so powerful in this community, we can totally make that dent. And I am here to help any way I can. But you all have my platform anytime you want. <laughs> and I'm so grateful to you for spending this hour with me. Uh, it was such a pleasure meeting you. Uh, it really is an honor to be speaking to you and speaking to the NBC community. I'm always amazed by the women that I meet through this, and in particular, the women that help me make this program happen who are, who are living with MBC. They are my daily inspiration with Adel. I had a friend, Emily Garnett, who was a really powerful voice, even though uh, she wasn't with us all that long. She used to say, it's the worst club with the best people. And, and I, I can make it a much bigger club everybody in the mm-hmm. breast cancer community, the early stage, the metastatic. And thank you so much for everything you do. Oh, thank you so much. This has been really wonderful. Thank you. And as promised, here is our friend Dar, bringing us a dash of joy. Hi. This is Dar Finkelstein, and I'm bringing you a dash of joy, a new segment on the RNBC Life podcast. Let me ask you, do you know the difference between happiness and joy? Well, happiness is based on external circumstances. It's a destination, a pot of gold. You've heard people say, well, I'll be happy when I get a new job, or I'd be happy if I just had more money. Well, those are just pots of gold. Life intervenes and those pots become elusive. Happiness requires control and you don't have control over much of what happens in life. You can't tie your well-being to happiness. But joy, joy can be present even in the darkest times. Joy is not based on external circumstances, it's internal. It's actually an attitude that defies your circumstances. Let me repeat that because it's important. Joy is just an attitude that defies the external circumstances in your life. Simply put, it's the way you look at your world, your perspective of what happens in the life around you. Luckily, for those of us going through difficult times, joy is entirely within our control. We struggle with the emotional weight of living with MBC, adjusting to the inevitable setbacks along the way, dealing with physical pain and facing our own immortality. But joy is still possible. We just have to change our perspective. Perspective is defined as a particular way of observing or considering something, just a state of mind. For example, have you ever gotten down on the floor to play with a small child and been surprised by how 
different the room looks when you're seeing it at a child's eye level. Or have you ever watched two TV news stations reporting on the same current event, but with widely different stories? These are examples of perspective at work. Several years ago, I was describing to my new husband a great idea I had to go on a camping vacation. I was going on and on about the adventures that I'd experienced as a child camping in the woods and how much fun we would have roughing it in nature. I was amazed when he didn't respond enthusiastically to my holiday plans. I had failed to consider his perspective as a city boy. What I viewed as a glorious adventure sounded like pure torture to him. It's all in how we look at things. That's how perspective works. You have the exact same circumstances and very different reactions from each person involved. But you can always change your reaction or your perspective. Let me tell you a quick story from this week. I'm having some radiation treatments and as we were driving to the medical center, we encountered a huge traffic jam. I was definitely going to be late. Now, there were a number of ways that I could deal with this setback. Before I learned to, to practice perspective, I would have sat fuming in my car, lamenting how this wasn't fair. How I was tired and just wanted to get my treatment, return home as quickly as possible and be in my jammies. But knowing that to have joy, I would need to shift my perspective. I called the center and told them I was going to be late. I then spent my time catching up on some podcasts. I was calm and joyful when I arrived because I was able to have some unexpected and uninterrupted me time. You can learn to choose your perspective. Choosing the way you look at the world is a major key in having a joyful life. But this is something that takes practice. Start small. When you feel yourself being overwhelmed, frustrated, or angry, Stop and think, how can I change my perspective? A tried and true way is to ask yourself, will this matter a day, a week, or a year from now? Reducing the irritant's importance helps to shift your perspective and reclaim your joy. Now, right now, you're probably saying, well, Dar, I think I can change the way I view those little things, but there's no way I can just change my perspective on the big things in life such as financial concerns, death of loved ones, or major health issues. As you practice changing your perspective on a daily basis, it will eventually become second nature, and you will learn how to create and recognize moments of joy, even when life gets really tough. Next month, we'll tackle some of the specific practices you can incorporate in your life to help it become more joyful. I hope you will join me on this joyful adventure on the RMBC Life Trailblazer episodes the last Friday of each month. Until we chat again, go find a bit of joy today. This podcast is produced by me, Lisa Laudrico, and our truly amazing team of Bob DeVito, Dar Finkelstein, Natalia Green, Victoria Goldberg, Ellen Landsberger, Sheila McGlone, Riley Starr, and Anne Woodward. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, the Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. Our senior intern is Sarah Mann, along with interns Angelica Alberstadt, Emily Lewis, 
Samantha Silverstein, and Amy Tedeschi. We have benefited from expert social media consulting from Jake Amarelli and sound design and original music compositions from Jim Cremens. You can find more episodes of RMBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate and review us and look for a new episode every second Monday. Check out our blog, full episode notes on our website at rmbclife.org. We would love to hear from you.